0: Podcastle 232 for October 30th, 2012. Skulls and the Stars featuring Solomon Kane, by Robert E. Howard. Rated R for violence. And this is a heads up, folks. We do call this a fantasy story, but it is kind of dark. Some of you might consider it horror. Happy Halloween.
1: Welcome to Podcastle. I'm MK Hobson and today's story is Skulls in the Stars by Robert E. Howard. It first appeared in Weird Tales in 1929 and it was the second Solomon Kane story ever published, following on the character's very popular 1928 debut in the story Red Shadows. I don't think I need to give a very long bio of author Robert E. Howard. He created Conan the Barbarian, and in doing so, basically founded the genre known as sword and sorcery. Enough said. Today, Howard is most famous for Conan, thanks to Arnold Schwarzenegger and one or two little movies he made. But I have always found Solomon Kane a much more interesting character. He's more nuanced, more mysterious, with an edge of devout psychopathy. And if the elevator pitch of an ass-kicking, sword-wielding pilgrim doesn't intrigue you, I just don't know what will. Which is not to say he isn't an incredibly problematic character as well. It's kind of hard to root for the pilgrim when you, you know, take into account the tragic history of European colonization and all that. And besides that, Robert E. Howard himself is a pretty problematic writer for modern audiences. While today's story is a straightforward, supernatural swashbuckle, the really unpleasant stereotypes that you'll find in some of the later Solomon Cain stories, particularly the ones set in Africa, are pretty cringeworthy and hard to read. Now, clearly, the racist views that came through in some of Howard's fiction were not at all unusual for the time in which he wrote. And to make matters worse, the pulp fiction marketplaces he was writing for demanded the most lurid, dramatic, over-the-top characterizations, which required exaggerating the already broad stereotypes of the time until they were just completely awful. As a writer, I have to say I feel for the guy, I don't like some of the stuff he wrote, but I'm not sure how he could have transcended his time, place, and genre to write much differently. And thinking about his situation makes me wonder what the grandchildren of today's writers will find most disturbing in our work. What offensive, ignorant ideas are we blithely expounding today that will make them cringe in 30 to 60 years' time? I'd love to hear people's thoughts on this in the forum. But let's get to the story, which is read by Norm Sherman, who, like Robert E. Howard, probably does not need much introduction. You know him as the co-host of Escape Pod, as well as the chief editor and charismatic host of the podcast phenomenon, The Drabblecast, a weekly speculative fiction podcast featuring strange stories for strange listeners. He lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and you can find out more at www.thedrabblecast.org. Enjoy the story.
2: Skulls in the Stars by Robert E. Howard He told how murders walk the earth beneath the curse of Cain, with crimson clouds before their eyes and flames about their brain, for blood has left upon their souls its everlasting stain. Hood There are two roads to Torktown. One, the shorter and more direct route, leads across a barren upland moor, and the other, which is much longer, winds its tortuous way in and out among the hummocks and quagmires of the swamps, skirting the low hills to the east. It was a dangerous and tedious trail, so Solomon Kane halted in amazement when a breathless youth from the village he had just left overtook him and implored him, for God's sake, to take the swamp road. The swamp road? Kane stared at the boy. He was a tall, gaunt man, Solomon Kane, his darkly pallid face and deeply brooding eyes made more somber by the drab, puritanical garb he affected. Yes, sir, "'Tis far safer,' the youngster answered to a surprised exclamation. "'Then the moor road must be haunted by Satan himself, "'for your townsmen warned me against traversing the other. "'Because of the quagmire, sir, that you might not see in the dark, "'you had better return to the village and continue your journey in the morning, sir.' "'Taking the swamp road?' "'Yes, sir.' Kane shrugged his shoulders and shook his head.' The moon rises almost as soon as twilight dies. By its light, I can reach Torktown in a few hours across the moor. Sir, you'd better not. No one ever goes that way. There are no houses at all upon the moor, while in the swamp there is the house of old Ezra, who lives there all alone since his maniac cousin Gideon wandered off and died in the swamp and was never found. And old Ezra, though a miser, could not refuse you lodging should you decide to stop until morning." Since you must go, you had better go the swamp road. Cain eyed the boy piercingly. The lad squirmed off and shuffled his feet. Since this moor road is so dour to wayfarers, said the Puritan, why do not the villagers tell me the whole tale instead of vague mouthings? "'Men like not to talk of it, sir. "'We hoped that you would take the swamp road "'after the men advised you to, "'but when we watched and saw "'that you had turned not at the forks, "'they sent me to run after you "'and beg you to reconsider.' "'Name of the devil!' exclaimed Kane sharply, "'the unaccustomed oath showing his irritation. "'The swamp road and the moor road. "'What is it that threatens me, "'and why should I go miles out of my way "'and risk the bogs and mires?' "'Sir,' said the boy, "'dropping his voice and drawing closer.' We be simple villagers, who like not to talk of such things, lest foul fortune befall us. But the moor road is a way accursed, and hath not been traversed by any of the countryside. For a year or more, it is death to walk those moors by night, as hath been found by some score of unfortunates. Some foul horror haunts the way and claims men for its victims. So, and what is this thing like? No man knows, none has ever seen and lived, but latefarers have heard terrible laughter far out in the fen, and men have heard the horrid shrieks of its victims. Sir, in God's name, return to the village, there pass the night, and tomorrow take the swamp trail to Torktown." Far back in Kane's gloomy eyes, a scintillant light had begun to glimmer like a witch's torch glinting under fathoms of cold gray ice. His blood quickened. Adventure, the lure of life risk and drama, not that Kane recognized his sensations as such. He considered that he voiced his real feelings when he said, These things be deeds of some power of evil. The lords of darkness have laid a curse upon the country. A strong man is needed to combat Satan and his might. Therefore, I go, who have defied him many a time. Sir, the boy began, then closed his mouth as he saw the futility of argument. He only added, The corpses of the victims are bruised and torn, sir. He stood there at the crossroads, sighing regretfully as he watched the tall, rangy figure swinging up the road that led toward the moors. The sun was setting as Cain came over the brow of the hill which debauched into the upland fen. Huge and blood-red, it sank down behind the sullen horizons of the moors, seeming to touch the rank grass with fire, so for a moment the watcher seemed to be gazing out across a sea of blood. Then the dark shadows came gliding from the east, the western blaze faded, and Solomon Kane struck out, boldly in the gathering darkness. The road was dim from disuse, but was clearly defined. Cain went swiftly, but warily, sword and pistols in hand. Stars blinked out and night winds whispered among the grass like weeping specters. The moon began to rise, lean and haggard, like a skull among the stars. Then, suddenly, Kane stopped short. From somewhere in front of him sounded a strange and eerie echo, or something like an echo. Again, this time, louder. Kane started forward again, were his senses deceiving him. Now, far out, there pealed a whisper of frightful slaughter. And again, closer this time. No human being ever laughed like that. There was no mirth in it, only hatred and horror and soul-destroying terror. Cain halted. He was not afraid, but for the second, he was almost unnerved. Then, stabbing through that awesome laughter, came the sound of a scream that undoubtedly was human. Cain started forward, increasing his gait. He cursed the elusive lights and flickering shadows which veiled the moor in the rising moon and made accurate sight impossible. The laughter continued, growing louder, as did the screams. Then suddenly faint the drums of frantic human feet. Cain broke into a run. Some human was being hunted to death out there on the fen, and by what manner of horror God only knew— The sound of the flying feet halted abruptly, and the screaming rose unbearably, mingled with other sounds unnameable and hideous. Evidently the man had been overtaken, and Cain, his flesh crawling, visualized some ghastly fiend of the darkness crouching on the back of its victim, crouching and tearing. Then the noise of a terrible and short struggle came clearly through the abysmal silence, and the footfalls began again, but stumbling and uneven. The screaming continued, but with a gasping gurgle. The sweat stood cold on Cain's forehead and body. This was heaping horror on horror in an intolerable manner. God for a moment's clear light. The frightful drama was being enacted within a very short distance of him, to judge by the ease with which the sounds reached him. But this hellish half-light veiled all in shifting shadows, so that the moors appeared a haze of blurred illusions, and stunted trees and bushes seemed like giants. Cain shouted, striving to increase the speed of his advance. The shrieks of the unknown broke into a hideous, shrill squealing. Again there was the sound of a struggle, and then from the shadows of the tall grass a thing came reeling, a thing that had once been a man, a gore-covered, frightful thing that fell at Cain's feet and writhed and groveled and raised its terrible face to the rising moon and gibbered and yammered and fell down again and died in its own blood. The moon was up now, and the light was better. Cain bent over the body, which lay stark in its unnameable mutilation, and he shuddered, a rare thing for him, who had seen the deeds of the Spanish Inquisition and the witch-finders. Some wayfarer, he supposed. Then, like a hand of ice on his spine, he was aware that he was not alone." He looked up, his cold eyes piercing the shadows whence the dead man had staggered. He saw nothing, but he knew, he felt, that other eyes gave back his stare, terrible eyes, not of this earth. He straightened and drew a pistol, waiting. The moonlight spread like a lake of pale blood over the moor, and trees and grasses took on their proper sizes. The shadows melted, and Cain saw... At first, he thought it was only a shadow of mist, a wisp of more fog that had swayed in the tall grass behind him. He gazed. More illusion, he thought. Then the thing began to take on shape, vague and indistinct. Two hideous eyes flamed at him, eyes which held all the stark horror which has been the heritage of man since the fearful dawn ages, eyes frightful and insane, with an insanity transcending earthly insanity. The form of the thing was misty and vague, a brain-shattering travesty on the human form, like, yet horribly, unlike. The grass and the bushes beyond showed clearly through it, Cain felt the blood pound in his temples, yet he was as cold as ice. How such an unstable being as that which wavered before him could harm a man in a physical way was more than he could understand, yet the red horror at his feet gave mute testimony that the fiend could act with terrible material effect." Of one thing Cain was sure. There would be no hunting of him across the dreary moors, no screaming and fleeing to be dragged down again and again. If he must die, he would die in his tracks, his wounds in front. Now a vague and grisly mouth gaped wide, and the demoniac laughter again shrieked, but soul-shaking in its nearness. Cain deliberately leveled his long pistol and fired. A maniacal yell of rage and mockery answered the report, and the thing came at him like a flying sheet of smoke, long shadowy arms stretched to drag him down. Cain moved with the dynamic speed of a famished wolf, fired the second pistol with as little effect, snatched his long rapier from its sheath, and thrust into the center of the misty attacker. The blade sang as it passed clear through, encountering no solid resistance, and Cain felt icy fingers grip his limbs, bestial talons tear his garments, and the skin beneath." He dropped the useless sword and sought to grapple with his foe. It was like fighting a floating mist, a flying shadow armed with dagger-like claws. His savage blows met empty air, his leanly mighty arms, in whose grasp strong men had died, swept nothingness and clutched emptiness. Nought was solid or real save the flailing ape-like fingers with their crooked talons and the crazy eyes which burned into the shuddering depths of his soul. Cain realized that he was in a desperate plight indeed. Already his garments hung in tatters, and he bled from a score of deep wounds. But he never flinched, and the thought of flight never entered his mind. He had never fled from a single foe, and had the thought occurred to him, he would have flushed with shame." He saw no help for it now, but that his form should lie there beside the fragments of the other victim. But the thought held no terrors for him. His only wish was to give as good an account of himself as possible before the end came, and if he could, to inflict some damage on his unearthly foe. There, above the dead man's torn body, man fought with demon under the pale light of the rising moon, with all the advantages with the demon, save one. And that one was enough to overcome the others. For if abstract hate may bring into material substance a ghostly thing, may not courage, equally abstract, form a concrete weapon to combat that ghost? Cain fought with his arms and his feet and his hands, and he was aware at last that the ghost began to give back before him, and the fearful slaughter changed to screams of baffled fury. For man's only weapon is courage, that flinches not from the gates of hell itself, and against such not even the legions of hell can stand. Of this Cain knew nothing. He only knew that the talons which tore and rended him seemed to grow weaker and wavering, that a wild light grew and grew in the horrible eyes, and reeling and gasping he rushed in, grappled the thing at last, and threw it, and as they tumbled about on the moor, and it writhed and lapped his limbs like a serpent of smoke, his flesh crawled and his hair stood on end, for he began to understand its gibbering. He did not, hear and comprehend as a man hears and comprehends the speech of man, but the frightful secrets it imparted in whisperings and yammerings and screaming silences sank fingers of ice into his soul, and he knew. Two. The hut of old Ezra the miser stood by the road in the midst of the swamp, half-screened by the sullen trees which grew about it. The walls were rotting, the roof crumbling, and great pallid and green fungus monsters clung to it and writhed about the doors and windows as if seeking to peer within. The trees leaned above it and their gray branches intertwined so that it crouched in semi-darkness like a monstrous dwarf over whose shoulder ogres leer. The road, which wound down into the swamp among rotting stumps and rank hummocks and scummy snake-haunted pools and bogs, crawled past the hut. Many people passed that way these days, but few saw old Ezra save a glimpse of a yellow face peering through the fungus-screened windows, itself like an ugly fungus. Old Ezra the miser partook much of the quality of the swamp, for he was gnarled and bent and sullen, his fingers were like clutching parasitic plants, and his locks hung like drab moss above eyes, trained to the murk of the swamplands. His eyes were like a dead man's, yet hinted of depths abysmal and loathsome as the dead lakes of the swamplands. These eyes gleamed now at the man who stood in front of his hut. This man was tall and gaunt and dark. His face was haggard and claw-marked, and he was bandaged of arm and leg. Somewhat behind this man stood a number of villagers. You are Ezra of the Swamp Road? ay? and what want ye of me? Where is your cousin, Gideon, the maniac youth who abode with you? Gideon? Aye. He wandered away into the swamp and never came back. No doubt he lost his way and was set upon by wolves or died in a quagmire or was struck by an adder. How long ago? Over a year. I Hark ye, Ezra the miser. Soon after your cousin's disappearance, a countryman, coming home across the moors, was set upon by some unknown fiend and torn to pieces, and thereafter it became death to cross those moors. First men of the countryside, then strangers who wandered over the fen, fell to the clutches of the thing. Many men have died since the first one. Last night I crossed the Moors, and I heard the flight and pursuing of another victim, a stranger who knew not the evil of the Moors. Ezra the Miser, it was a fearful thing, for the wretch twice broke down from the fiend, terribly wounded, and each time the demon caught and dragged him down again, and at last he fell dead at my very feet, done to death in a manner that would freeze the statue of a saint." The villagers moved restlessly and murmured fearfully to each other, and old Ezra's eyes shifted furtively. Yet the somber expression of Solomon Cain never altered, and his condor-like stare seemed to transfix the miser. "'Aye, ay! muttered old Ezra hurriedly. "'A bad thing, a bad thing. Yet why do you tell this thing to me?' a sad thing, hearken further, Ezra. The fiend came out of the shadows, and I fought with it over the body of its victim. Ay, how I overcame it, I know not, for the battle was hard and long, but the powers of good and light were on my side, which are mightier than the powers of hell. At the last I was stronger, and it broke for me and fled, and I followed to no avail. Yet before it fled it whispered to me a monstrous truth. Old Ezra started, stared wildly, seemed to shrink into himself. Nay, why tell me this, he muttered. I returned to the village and told my tale, said Cain, for I knew that I had the power to rid the moors of its curse forever. Ezra, come with us. Where, gasped the miser, to the rotting oak on the moors. Ezra reeled as though struck. He screamed incoherently and turned to flee. On the instant, at Cain's sharp order, two brawny villagers sprang forward and seized the miser. They twisted the dagger from his withered hand and pinioned his arms, shuddering as their fingers encountered his clammy flesh. Cain motioned them to follow and turned, strode up the trail, followed by the villagers who found their strength taxed to the utmost in their task of bearing their prisoner." Through the swamp they went, and out, taking a little-used trail which led over the hills and out to the moors. The sun was sliding down the horizon, and old Ezra stared at it with bulging eyes, stared as if he could not gaze enough. Far out on the moors geared up the great oak tree, like a gibbet, now only a decaying shell. There Solomon Cain halted. Old Ezra writhed in his captor's grasp and made inarticulate noises. "'Over a year ago,' said Solomon Kane, "'you, fearing that your insane cousin Gideon would tell men of your cruelties to him, "'brought him away from the swamp by the very trail by which we came "'and murdered him here in the night.' "'Ezra cringed and snarled. "'You cannot prove this lie.' Cain spoke a few words to an agile villager. The youth clambered up the rotting bowl of the tree and from a crevice high up dragged something that fell with a clatter at the feet of the miser. Ezra went limp with a terrible shriek. The object was a man's skeleton, the skull cleft. You, how knew ye this? You are Satan, gibbered old Ezra. Cain folded his arms. The thing I fought last night told me this thing as we reeled in battle, and I followed it to this tree, for the fiend is Gideon's ghost. Ezra shrieked again and fought savagely. "'You knew,' said Cain somberly. "'You knew what things did these deeds. You feared the ghost, the maniac, and that is why you chose to leave his body on the fen instead of concealing it in the swamp, for you knew the ghost would haunt the place of his death. He was insane in life, and in death he did not know where to find his slayer, else he had come to you in your hut.' He hates man but you, but his maze spirit cannot tell one from another, and he slays all, lest he let his killer escape. Yet he will know you and rest in peace forever after. Hate hath made of his ghost, solid thing that can rend and slay, and though he feared you terribly in life, in death he fears you not at all. Cain halted. He glanced at the sun. All this I had from Gideon's ghost, in his yammerings and his whisperings and his shrieking silences, naught but your death will lay that ghost. Ezra listened in breathless silence, and Cain pronounced the words of his doom. A hard thing it is, said Cain somberly, to sentence a man to death in cold blood and in such a manner as I have in mind. But you must die that others may live, and God knoweth you deserve death. You shall not die by noose, bullet, or sword, but at the talons of him you slew, for naught else will satiate him. At these words Ezra's brain shattered, his knees gave way, and he fell groveling and screaming for death, begging them to burn him at the stake or flay him alive. Cain's face was set like death, and the villagers, the fear rousing their cruelty, bound the screeching wretch to the oak tree, and one of them bade him make his peace with God. But Ezra made no answer, shrieking in a high, shrill voice with unbearable monotony. Then the villager would have struck the miser across the face, but Cain stayed him. Let him make his peace with Satan, who he is more like to meet, said the Puritan grimly. The sun is about to set, loose his cords so that he may work loose by dark, since it is better to meet death free and unshackled than bound like a sacrifice. As they turned to leave him, old Ezra yammered and gibbered unhuman sounds, and then fell silent, staring at the sun with terrible intensity. They walked away across the fen, and Cain flung a last look at the grotesque form bound to the tree, seeming in that uncertain light like a great fungus growing to the bowl. And suddenly the miser screamed hideously, Death, death, there are skulls in the stars. Life was good to him, though he was gnarled and churlish and evil, Cain sighed mayhap god has a place for such souls where fire and sacrifice may cleanse them of their dross as fire cleans the forest of fungus things yet my heart is heavy within me nay sir one of the villagers spoke you have done but the will of god and good alone shall come of this night's deed nay answered cain heavily i know not i know not The sun had gone down, and night spread with amazing swiftness, as if great shadows came rushing down from unknown voids to cloak the world in hurrying darkness. Through the thick night came a weird echo, and the men halted and looked back the way they had come. Nothing could be seen. The moor was an ocean of shadows, and the tall grass about them bent in long waves before the faint wind, breaking the deathly stillness with breathless murmurings. Then, far away, the red disk of the moon rose over the fen, and for an instant, a grim silhouette was etched blackly against it. A shape came flying across the face of the moon, a bent, grotesque thing whose feet seemed scarcely to touch the earth, and close behind came a thing like a flying shadow, a nameless, shapeless horror. A moment, the racing twain stood out boldly against the moon. Then they merged into one unnameable, formless mass and vanished in the shadows. Far across the fen sounded a single shriek of terrible laughter.
0: and welcome back that was our story hope you enjoyed it solomon kane just seemed like the right kind of black dress cat to end october with if you're looking for more halloween stories you can check out both escape pod which is running viler kaftan's lion dance and pseudopod which is running rajan kana's Pumpkinhead. i haven't listened to those stories yet but i'm really looking forward to before halloween gets here And if you're looking for more still, the Journey Into podcast is running my own story, Ichabod Crane, Master of the Occult. Check it out if you're looking for one more treat before Halloween. Okay, feedback this week is for Erica Satifka's The Hand of God, read by Dave Robison. The story about a strange town literally covered by the hand of God, and how some of its inhabitants choose to leave for a time, thanks to shrooms and what they find. Empathy44 really liked it and said, In part, I like the slow picture that develops as the main character begins to grow up and finds out what's going on. I loved how almost every assumption he had made is placed upon its ear. On the other hand, once you find out what's on the other side of the hand, ambiguity disappears. I think it's clear that the hand is protecting the town from the mutants outside. I don't think sentience is in question, just whether or not they could really win. Not everyone thought it was an ace. Devoted135 said, I feel like this story does a 180 degree turn halfway through the narrative. First, we have the story of a kid who was stuck in his drug-ridden, click-ridden town and trying desperately to get away. Then we have a post-apocalyptic story of townspeople banding together to fend off the monsters who were threatening their town. I like both of these stories, and the concept of the hand of God entrapping or protecting the town is a cool one, but I think the transition between the two was a little too abrupt for me. Well, thank you very much for those comments. Let us know what you thought of this week's story by visiting our board at forum.escapeartist.net. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to donate, please visit podcastle.org and consider making a donation. Thanks. Well, that about wraps it up for this year's set of October stories. I hope you enjoyed listening to them. We do have something coming up for you for Dia de los Muertos, so keep an eye on that feed. Podcastles made up of associate editor Ann Leckie, guest host M.K. Hobson, sound producer Peter Wood, and your editors, Anna Schwend and myself. On behalf of all of us, I'd like to thank you for letting us share another story with you. Next week, we'll be featuring Genevieve Valentine's study for Solo Piano. Until then, I'm Dave Thompson, reminding you to be careful which road you choose to travel by moonlight. Make sure you always travel with sword. See you next time.
1: Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site.
0: Our closing quote is a long one from Ray Bradbury, who said, For these beings, fall is ever the normal season, the only weather. There be no choice beyond. Where do they come from? The dust. Where do they go? The grave. Does blood stir their veins? No. The night wind. What ticks in their head? The worm. What speaks from their mouth? The toad. What sees from their eye? The snake. What hears with their ear? The abyss between the stars. They sift the human storm for souls, eat flesh of reason, fill tombs with sinners. They frenzy forth. Such are the autumn people. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.